0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingus, number one in its field. This is part two of our special interview with Jeff Lloyd, who retired from race riding just three weeks ago after his final day at Doomban on July 13th. Jeff, have you been a a confidence jockey throughout your career? Do you get better and better on a good day?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I've. I always approach every meeting the same. I have a sort of set pattern the way I I, I approach a meeting. Uh, I do a lot of homework, um, and uh, yeah, when you're going to races, especially when you're a leading rider in a country, uh, you go there with normally seven seven good rides, and there's a lot of pressure on you, and to try and try and do your form properly, and know every race you've got to ride differently, and you have a set plan. Um, it can get very confusing when it starts bad if you get beaten the first couple, especially if you haven't ridden one the way you wanted to. It it, it can play mind games with you. And I think as a sportsman that is where the the toughness comes out in and certain people that can handle it and get through that, but and still manage to still ride well later in the day. But if it started off well and I won my first two or one you know, and I just felt I, I improved horses that probably couldn't win and and you they, you just they run for you. you yeah. horses are amazing. They just felt oozed the confidence that you were you, you were you know relating through to them.
0: Mm. When you decided to leave South Africa for distant horizons, you were given an amazing send off by friends and racing people. Your last couple of meetings were at Turfontaine and Scottsville. And I think the Scottsville one in particular was a very emotional occasion.
1: It was. It was very emotional. Um, Yeah, I've I've never been – I've never thought I was one to get too emotional. But, (laughs) yeah, that that day got to me saying goodbye and um, going to another country where I I knew nothing about. I was Mm. sort of of saying goodbye to racing. You know, I wasn't sure where I was going, so – yeah, something that had been such a big part of me and and, and my family. Nicola, it was a b- big, bold move that we we decided to move. So there was a lot of mixed feelings about what I'm leaving behind and where we're we going to. So, mm. yeah, to say goodbye to everybody that helped me get to where I was, was was very touching.
0: I'd like to touch on the reasons for your move to Australia now. You and Nicola and the, the kids who were very young – lived in a durban housing estate which was surrounded by a wall and it had security gates which were manned by heavily armed guards that must have troubled you constantly
1: you know it's it's it became part of south africa you know as as trouble started increasing um, these estates started building for or uh, the people that were fortunate enough to live in these estates, they were big homes um, and lovely properties, and it sort of just cut you off from, you know, the the real world that was going on out there. Um, it it wasn't as bad as as it sounded, um, but it became you you sort of grew as you grew up, and, and the intensity grew with the crime rate. You sort of handled it, but you you became more and more cautious. Um, of where to go and when to go somewhere. And I think you just sort of get to live with it. Um, It's more of a reality check when we go back now that, you know, that's the way you live and you accept it. And, you know, that we were just fortunate that we could afford a a good home and an estate, and it did make things a lot easier.
0: If you wanted to take Nicola to a restaurant for dinner, you'd go very, very early in the evening before there was too much cash in the till. It wasn't uncommon, was it, for restaurants to be held up later in the night?
1: Yeah, it, it it had happened. It was like a at the one time it was happening a lot. Restaurants were getting sort of hit later in the evening when obviously the the tills were full. So it was just common sense, you know, go out early, uh, get a get a dinner early, and and get out of there. It just as I say, you just sort of the the bad luck out of the equation and tried to do things uh, for safety reasons and it, it's it's shame because it's probably uh, the most beautiful country that we our hearts are still there but and but we had to walk away from it just for safety reasons um, and yeah, it was sad but uh, that's the way the country is and and, and you just if some people can't get out there and some people would never leave they're staunch you know they like your Australians to your country, they are to theirs. But we we were lucky that we managed to get out just in time and and start a life
0: here. Yeah. Your brother-in-law, Glenn Schofield, decided to join you on this uh, very exciting mission. So suddenly there were two unknown South African jockeys in Sydney. You couldn't have picked a tougher place.
1: Yeah, we um. As I say, we, we were both unsure we, we were what what laid ahead. Um, we came here knowing nothing. I was fortunate enough that I had David Payne here and and knocked on his door for some assistance and and sort of where to go from here. And he explained how all things work. It was so different to where how South Africa worked. So I spent a lot of time picking his brain. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was an eye-opener. It was completely different to what we'd been used to, and uh, it took a, a lot of adjusting.
0: Mm. Well, you, David Payne supplied your very first winner in Australia. It was a mare called Vecchia Roma. The race was yep. at Rose Hill on the 8th of December 2007, and you just got there.
1: Yeah, yep. I'd only been riding work probably about a a week for David and uh, this filly came along and I'd worked her and and he said, oh, she's in next week. Uh, She's a nice filly. And uh, I remember walking on the course and it was was mind-blowing. Just walking on this track, it was just, didn't know where to go, didn't know where the jockey room was, not (laughs) knowing what to expect. And not, we're not used to riding um, without uh, cutoff rails we we always had cutoff rails six seven meters so there was always runs for you so it, it was you know coming to ride here on I hadn't had a lot of experience riding on these type of tracks and wasn't too sure I all would unfold but I suppose when you've travelled and ridden a lot around the world, things come too easy and and, and naturally you sort of make the right choices and she won a short head and it was a great way to start.
0: New Year's Day 2008 is an important day in your scrapbook. This is the day you got a real kickstart. You rode three winners at Randwick, Hurried Choice, Eagle Rock and Harlem Heat. That launched you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I had a three-timer then. I think I had a four-timer not not soon after uh, at Kensington. Um, yeah, and those are the things that sort of catch people's attention. You, it's, good, it's good to be consistent and regularly spin seen, but, yeah, when you hit a three-timer or four-timer, um, as I say, your confidence in the day gets better. So horses improve. Your style looks better because you're riding with so much confidence and they, they get to see the best of you. Yeah. Sometimes when it's just one winner, it's, it's like sometimes a little bit desperate and, and it, they don't see the best of you. But when you're riding that well, yeah, you, you just look so much better on a horse too.
0: I'm sure you were aware that everybody was talking about your unorthodox style. It looked very, very different, but it was obvious horses were really running for you. So you just let the results do the talking.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny because I I started doing it back early, uh, probably in the late 80s, early 90s in South Africa, and that was sort of the time I was riding for David Payne, and and when I started, he said, what is this crap you're doing? And I explained it to him, and he said, you're not going to do these on my horses, I'll just go find another job. Did he? (laughs) Yeah, he didn't like it at all, and uh, he's still not keen on it now, but... I, I stuck by it, and horses were winning, so I didn't lose the job, and, and I stuck yeah. with the, the style. And uh, when I came to Australia and uh, approached him, he said, "You're not still doing that crap, are you?" And <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Sorry to tell you, but it's got worse." Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is a style that uh, people have to get used to. But I think once they see how effective it is, that um, you know they that. They, as long as you're winning and they can see you're getting everything out of a horse um, they'll go they'll
0: go with it yeah Jeff it was amazing to watch you back then uh, and right through to the end of your career but horses had run to you as they were they were going to go straight past and uh, yeah. two strides later you've found half a length it happened time and time again yeah I've always
1: uh, I've always um, been very proud of that thing that jockeys often say i'm one of the hardest jocks to get past in a race and i i think yeah it, it's obviously there's it's a build-up of everything that gets to that 100 meter mark you know like i think if if you've done everything right and you've got horses breathing well and, and the whole race has unfolded you know sometimes you make daring moves and you think you can't sustain it but yeah, it's it's great that you you get something a little bit more out of a horse. Um, it's a great feeling when you feel yourself that I'm going to get beat, and then you find a little bit more. It's it's very satisfying. And I I later later on in my career I loved leading on horses uh, when I was younger, and I didn't understand pace that well. I didn't enjoy the comfort of being in front, but later on I loved the challenge of leading judging pace slowing down and then finding more when horses come to challenge you it's 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 very rewarding
0: it wasn't long before a wide range of trainers were chasing your services and you got to ride for the late Jack Denham a legend in Australian racing and I'm sure you'd heard a lot about him before your first ride for the stable
1: yeah, I'd heard a lot about the name. And um, when I first came here, I was just riding work for David Payne and uh, doing all my work there thinking, well, if, if I'm ever going to get going, no one's going to give me a go except David. So let me just put all my work into him, get the horses. And we, I went there every day, worked his horses and, and tried to get the, to know them as well as I could. And uh, I didn't get a chance to ride for other people. But then I heard about um, Jack Denham used to work very early uh, and he, he started before David and David was uh, one of the earliest. So I thought, well, there's, there's an opportunity to to go and ride work for somebody else. So I got up uh, half an hour earlier and got to Jack Denham who started first in the mornings and I'll never forget he was at the end of his training career and, he, and he'd always be sitting on his st- on his chair. Yeah. And Ellen Alan was doing all the running around and, and Jack just stood there and he was <laughs> and he, he was like what I was I used to write for a guy called Ormond Ferraris in South Africa and the same type of tough old school man. And uh, as I looked at him I thought, God, this is like going back in time. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like running for this South African trainer. He was just what came out of his mouth, it, just like you just pierced. It, it was mm-hmm. piercing, you just had to listen and and he told some great stories of where he'd been and yeah, uh, it was I, I used to love my little you know, half an hour spent there, take two in the morning before I went to to David and, and we had we had a lot of winners together. Very fortunate.
0: You didn't have to wait long for that life-changing major win. The champion trainer of stayers, Murray Baker, put you on a very stoutly bred cult called Nom De Jeu in the two thousand and eight Australian derby. You went back to last in a very big field and then you secured a miracle run on the home turn. Did you intend to get that far back?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd ridden the horse. Previously, I got on the horse about 10 days prior to the race through through them asking me to work him, and I worked him on a bog track. It was raining for two weeks continuously at Randwick, and and the the tracks were underwater, so we were working on the grass nearly every day, and uh, he just cruised through. He, He gave you a feel no other horse gave me on that heavy surface during that period when I was working horses. And I just knew he just loved the track. And But he was a difficult horse. He pulled hard and always overdone things. So, yeah, it was always going to be my plan. I, I worked him and I, and I just honestly thought this horse would win if I could get him to relax. He had mm. such a turn of foot on heavy ground, which most horses don't have. Mm. So I, I just um, I said uh, to Murray Baker, like, if I can get him to settle, I think well he'll win. Um, so from the widest draw, it, the first part of the race wasn't important except just get to get him to settle and then ride the race once I'd got him to relax. Unfortunately, the pace was quick early on and I got a long way back, probably 20 lengths off him. But mm. he was completely switched off, and uh, the time the tiring horses were coming back, they were all rolling off the fence, and and runs just kept appearing, and uh, I couldn't believe I'd I'd from being probably 10 lengths off them at the 600 was probably a length off them straightening and uh, done nothing. I was very confident at that time.
0: Oh, yeah, and a a very dominant win. Now, then came a stint in Hong Kong, Jeff. Initially, it was to be a three-month arrangement, but things changed.
1: Yeah, after I'd won the derby, I got a call up from um, the jockey club there and, and asked if I would think about, uh, three-month contract, which I was obviously delighted to, to go to. I've been um, regretting not going back from the first time I went there early in my career. Uh, it was something I always wanted to do and, and I couldn't believe that they invited me. I was 46 years old and to get the opportunity to go, I grabbed it with both hands and I just had a fall and I, and I went there with a with a bad injury. But he got on a plane, went there and... Um, Three months turning into in you know another extension to six months to a full season and then stayed there for nearly four seasons. Yeah.
0: Mm. You got a very big kick to win the Hong Kong Mile, a Group One, on the great old warrior Abel One. He was a nine-year-old and he wasn't completely sound. Yeah,
1: he would he had um, he had a lot of major injuries a couple of years prior to this win and been scratched on two occasions in this race one one occasion he was favourite to win it I think two years prior uh, and he had cracked a pelvis uh, and he yeah he was he, he was a soldier but he, he definitely was like the iron horse of, of Hong Kong and they loved him he was a gallant horse from the front and uh, yeah he just yeah his work prior to the race was very good and uh, he just went on and Beat the favourite, who is a stable companion, uh, extension. They were doing all their work prior to the race together and uh, he was he was favourite and we were 60 to one. I couldn't work it out because mm-hmm. yeah, his work was good.
0: A catalogue of almost 200 horses will be offered for sale at the final English auction of the year, the 2019 Ready to Race sale at Riverside Stables on Tuesday, October 22nd. All horses of two-year-olds, broken in and prepared by experienced horse people and presented for sale, literally ready to race. Each horse will undertake a breeze up session which is a gallop ending in a 200 metre sprint. Each breeze up will be recorded which will enable prospective buyers to get a gauge on a horse's action, size and potential ability. There'll be an additional Breeze Up session this year at Eagle Farm in Brisbane on Monday, September the 23rd, and other sessions will be held at Cranbourne, September the 13th, Warwick Farm, September 20th, Taupo in New Zealand, September the 23rd, with a second session at Warwick Farm on Friday, October the 18th. The strength and quality of the English Ready to Race sale catalog is unparalleled in Australasia. When it was time to settle back in Australia, you and Nicola decided to make your home on the Gulf Coast, a decision that you'd made some time before. Everything was going along swimmingly when disaster struck. You came home from a midweek meeting at Doomban, not feeling well. You'd had a tumble on the day. What happened there? On your way to the barrier, wasn't
1: it? No, it was in the parade ring um, Mm. in the mounting yard. Uh, just getting on the young horses and uh, as I got on his back, he, he took off and I w- wasn't properly on and I got, f- I got flipped off the back and obviously um, I'd broken a finger and I was you know, obviously very shaken up but carried on riding for the rest of the day. And got home and didn't feel right. and said, Nicholas, geez, something's happened. Um, Just didn't feel good, bad headaches and and lightheadedness. Mm. And just sort of went to bed early, put a heat pack on my neck, thinking I'd I'd damaged something. Um, But I'll sort it out tomorrow. But unfortunately, I had racing the next day at the sunny coast. Mm. And had to make a decision whether to ride or not the next day. But being the competitiveness I am, I said, look, I'll just – take a couple of headache pills, I'll be fine, I'll get through this, and and I'll I'll see the doctor the next day, prolong it, you know, and how bad can it be, and off I went, and I I got to the parade ring for the first race, and I rode for a a man that, a train that was in a wheelchair, so I was kneeling down, talking to him about about the horse, and when the, when the steward told us to get up, I stood up to get on the horse, and and had a bad spell, and had to grab onto a pole that nearby because, uh, mm. yeah, I've got all dizziness and all that, and I just thought oh, I stood up too quick. So mm. just told the stewards, leave me alone for a couple of seconds. I'll be fine, but not knowing I had a stroke. And, uh, Good heavens. Uh, yeah, obviously didn't go away. It got worse and got, had to get off the rest of the day and mm. um, drove home and uh, went to a chiropractor the next day thinking, yeah, I've obviously displaced something, and let him have a look at it. Give me a few clicks, and and uh, it'll all be good. But that wasn't the case. Uh, as I sat down, I had the bad same turn again, and he said, "Look, this not good. Like, I'll send me straight to the MRI." Mm. I thought was I thought myself at the time like, you know, "He's over exaggerating this." God, I just want a a little crack, and I'll be fine. And but I had to go and do it, and went off, obviously thinking nothing, and. Uh, I was, like, shocked when they said to me, you've had a stroke. You're on a stroke. Took me straight off to uh, intensive care and um, started giving me injections to thin my blood out. It was, like, the next few days was very important. Uh, they said, look, you've got away with it, but if you have another one, it's going to it's gonna be life-threatening. And so the next few, our next few days was worrying, and luckily um, – Besides dizzinesses and bad headaches, and uh, uh, it didn't get any worse. It um, it was just something I had to live with.
0: Mm-hmm. And you lived with it for fourteen months before you rode again. And there was one positive to come out of that long break: you were able to fully recover from back pain, which had plagued you for ten years. Yeah,
1: I probably from from uh, early on in my career, work, and I always thought it was probably Mauritius years, um, horses were very keen in the mornings and really pulled your arms out. And and I started battling in my back with my lower back because of this. I used to get off a horse and go put ice on it and then give me 10 minutes with ice and then go back, and that's how I got through the morning. Um, So from those days, I battled with my lower back and continued living on Voltaren's after-race meetings which is not healthy for you, but mm. that's the only way I was getting through it, and uh, you suffered a lot later in my career. So, yeah, that was the only positive that came out of it that uh, I gave my back a rest and got some help that I needed with chiropractors and and um, other other doctors, and it they, they came good and well, luckily haven't had a problem since.
0: There's little doubt <laughs> your longevity is largely attributable to the fact that you're a natural lightweight. You've never been a prisoner of the sweat box. You you eat very much like a human being.
1: I do, but we eat very healthy. I must say, Nicola, she's always – she looks at my rides and and, and then if there's a light ride coming up, she sort of knows they might have steak, but she'll organise me fish or chicken. Uh, It got easier when I got married to look after my weight I, it was hard living on my own because obviously you don't cook the way your wife cooks and it was difficult in those days but once I got married I, I found that my weight was easier to control because of you know being prepared properly the foods and and all that so yeah luckily I was a natural light, lightweight but uh, it was still important to eat correctly and I think that got better and better throughout my career I started understanding my weight better and understanding nutrition and diets and, and did it cor- correctly. the old days, we were allowed to take LASIKs and we, we all ran around with sweat clothes on and and, mm. and bloody taking wee pills and laxatives to lose weight, and it just shortens your career. So luckily, as you get older, you understand how bad it is and mm. your eating habits improve. And as I say, once I got married, uh, I, I reckon it was probably my – my best time with my weight uh, was probably my last 20 years.
0: Elder son Jaden is totally focused on being a jockey. You started him off writing track work for Toby Edmonds and then you packed him off to the famous South African Jockeys Academy where you started all those years ago.
1: Yeah, um, he, uh, he he started doing some work with me here. He, he only decided late uh, in his in life for a young boy, not like me wanting to be a jockey my whole life. I I had two sons, and the one was keen right from the beginning. Zach was like just wanting to be a jockey from the time I can remember. Mm-hmm. Jaden didn't. He was more interested in animals, loved animals, and was always interested in training. He, he thought something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, he said to me one day, "No, I, I want to be a jockey." And I thought, oh, "Okay." And we put him on, and he was, n- nothing came easy to him. He had to work hard. He um, nothing. He wasn't a natural. He was natural with animals. You could see horses loved him, and he had a great understanding with 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 the horse. Um, but in the beginning, he. He just battled with a few things, and I just thought he's and his school is a bit like me, unfortunately. The other one, he's very clever at school and wants to finish school. Where Jaden was a bit like me, he wasn't the brightest kid in the block, and thought it won't won't harm him taking him out of school, going to the academy where I know what he's going to have to go through for a year, and I explained it to him. And to his credit, he never hesitated. I think he was only too happy to get out of school. <laughs> He'd do anything. <laughs> yeah. So he got on. He got. He got on a plane, and off he went to South Africa, which was very tough. But uh, I must say, he handled himself very well, and and uh, got through it. Um, due to a fall and a broken wrist, he, he we brought him back shorter than what we wanted him to stay. But I think he benefited from it, and. Uh, and I think it's 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 something he'll always look back on, and and like I have, and thought, yeah, it was it was a lot of good out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, he's apprenticed to Hayes, Hayes and Dabenig. He's riding frequently now at the trials, and uh, his debut as a jockey isn't too far off.
1: Yeah, it's pretty close now. It's been a long time. I think he's had a great preparation in in. Um, in where he is. Um, he's worked hard, never complained once. He's, um even now when I, I think he's like ready to get going and I, th- I feel he thinks he's ready to get going. He's not complaining. He's just working hard. Uh, the time will come whenever we sort of say, when's it going to happen? He says, relax Dad. you know, whether it's this week or next week, uh, he's got a beautiful attitude to it all. Um, but I can see he's, he's itching and he, and he wants to, he wants to get going now and, yeah, I can't wait as well to see um, you know how he goes, and I just think he's he's improved from where he came from in the beginning, and how hard it was for him, to, the way it all started. He's he's made tremendous improvement, and uh, yeah, I think everybody that like David Hayes and Tom say he works hard, and that's the main thing. I said, long as you work hard, I don't care the results, they will come as long as you work hard.
0: Now your youngest boy Zach who turned 16 just in the last week, he weighs only 34 kilos. So he does look like a natural lightweight. Jaden may not be a natural lightweight, but Zach certainly is.
1: Yeah, Jaden's going to have to watch it. They're built completely different. Jaden's more like um, the the, the side of the family, Chad, uh, the taller version and thin-boned, and he's going to he, – He's, he's going to have to obviously look after it, but I think if he maintains himself well, he, he should be fine. He's not going to – I don't think he's going to grow out of the game as long as he looks after himself. But, uh, Zach is more – He's got he's like a twin to me in the body. Uh, he's sh- shorter. He'll probably get a little bit taller than me, but he's a compact little boy. Um, very conscious of his weight already and – he weighs 34, but I don't think he could get down to 33 if he tried. I mean, that, that, is, that is from looking after himself, and he's a, he loves sports, so he's a very fit young boy, and uh, he's got his head on the right way.
0: Your daughter, Taya, your only daughter, is 21, and apart from some pony club riding in Hong Kong, she's had nothing to do with racehorses.
1: No, she (laughs) she even till till the day I I stopped, I'd come home and and I'd say, "Tay, did Dad have a winner today?" She'll go, "Um, "Obviously, I have no idea." Uh, (laughs) uh, "Yes, Dad, you did." I said, "How do you know? You you wouldn't ask if you didn't have one."
0: (laughs) (laughs) She worked you out.
1: (laughs) She worked me out. Yeah, she she's um she's she's never got involved in racing. She doesn't care what happens. She hasn't got a worry in the world. She just lives in her own little world, and she's very happy with that. And what we do is she comes to our meetings and sort of looks around like, is this what all the fuss has been about over the years? <laughs> yeah, that's mm. yeah, beautiful.
0: Forty years and thousands of race rides hasn't come without the inevitable accidents. When you left South Africa, you'd had a total of 14 race falls. I don't know why it is, but most jockeys can tell you exactly how many race falls they've had. Looking back on those early days, you say you caused a lot of those yourself.
1: Yeah, I was was terrible when I look back. Um, I think it's because of my upbringing, um, negligence to race riding. I didn't understand a race. I didn't, as I say, I was never attached to anything to do with racing. So I wasn't brought up in people talking about racing and and the ups and the downs and what can happen. So to me, when I was in a race, it was all about, you know, just going anywhere. It didn't matter. I just had to get closer to winning. So Mm. I I, I would take unnecessary gaps and and do bad, stupid decisions uh, early in my career. And uh, I remember a few jockeys, Basil Marcus was the poor bugger, that always seemed to be behind me when I fell, and I brought him down (laughs) three times. And he said to me yeah. once, You're a nightmare to follow in a race. Like, I was leading rider at the time, but I still kept falling. Mm. And poor Basil kept coming down with me, and he, he did, it nearly cost him his life once. He, he was, it screws in his bolts yeah. in his brain. And oh, so yeah, I was a nightmare to follow, but I just, I had no fear, and I, I didn't care about the consequences. I. It was all about winning. And mm. when I look back now, I probably could have had a lot more winners because <laughs> I was out in the saddle for so many years. Yeah. So uh, the one year I rode for six weeks, I, I was out I'd three falls. As i come back, I'd fall again, and mm. it was terrible. But, um, yeah, a slow learner.
0: You rode up until the eve of your 58th birthday, so you're obviously in pretty good shape, Jeff. Do you have to cope with – legacies of race falls or you're getting around pretty well
1: no i'm getting around well i i I am and probably as i say from the 40 months off give my body a real good rest um i've I've still got like an ankle that blows up because when i broke it it, i was supposed to be off for two months and i and it was a stupid story but i was watching a, a movie and it was about an athlete true story and she went back she threw away the crutches and and, and started training again and, and I thought, stuff that she can do it, I can. So I threw away my crutches because <laughs> of the movie and took the lady, cast off me foot and, uh, and went back to work three weeks after four. So we're, I battle with that ankle now whenever it's cold in winter. It's better. That's yeah. my own fault. But besides that, I've been good.
0: There's one more tribute I'd like to pay you, Jeff Lloyd. You've been a wonderful friend to the media. Wherever your career has taken you, all over the world, you've been accessible, you've been very informative, you've been very helpful, just as you have on this podcast. And I know I speak for all journalists and commentators to whom you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Great great to have a chat.
0: The word congratulations uh, doesn't seem adequate in acknowledging your incredible career. To the racing industry in several countries, you've been an ornament. And to the noble art of race riding, you've been what Michelangelo was to sculpture. Happy, healthy retirement, Jeff. Oh, thanks
1: so much, John. Very touching. <laughs> Thank you.
0: And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The stallion representation at the English Ready to Race Sale on October the twenty-second is a who's who of the breeding industry. Better than Ready, Nakone, Brazen Bow, not a single doubt. Deep Field, Rubik, done Deal, and Shooting to Win, and we've just scratched the surface. Add to that. Hinchinbrook, so you think Holy Roman Emperor, Spirit of Boom, I am Invincible, Starcraft, Medaglia Doro, Tavistock, More Than Ready, Written Tycoon, No Nay Never, and Zoo Star. English again team up with Racing New South Wales by presenting the sale three days after the Everest. The timing will ensure the attention of world buyers who'll be focused on Sydney at Everest time. October 22nd is the date for the English Ready to Race sale at Riverside.